This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Well, first, first question. First, obviously, you mentioned they had been born in, in the late 1940s. You have a strong mm. love and passion for Manchester United. Uh, six books in United, 20 books in total. Just what does the club mean to you and what are your earliest memories of Manchester United? Well, yes, I, I lived um, down by the docks in Salford, which is now Media City. So anybody who's been to Media City... That in the 50s, um, 40s, 50s and early 60s was Salford Docks. Um, and, you know, ocean going, the ships there, trading, etc. Um, and of course, just walking the other way, you just crossed over Trafford uh, Road, which was a swing bridge then, uh, to let the boats go through. Uh, and you just, you were there, you were in Trafford Park, you were, so I was five, six minutes walk away from the two old trappings because, you know, in the in the summer I went to the cricket at, at Lancashire, but in the winter I was absorbed and intrigued by, by the football. Uh, and um, although I'm credited a lot with having a great memory of that era, and, and thankfully I have uh, from the mid-50s um, about that team, the Busby Babes, because I did see them, um, I can't 100% and on heart tell you the first time I went. I think it was the Boxing Day game against Aston Villa in 1954. But the first game I absolutely remember is a Youth Cup game in March 1955. It was played on a Saturday morning against Plymouth. And United won 9-0, which wasn't unexpected because they were undefeated at youth level. But the team, the halfback line was Eddie Coleman was four. Duncan Edwards played centre-half that day, five. Wilf McGuinness played six. Uh, Bobby Charlton was ten. And Shea Brennan was on the left wing. So it wasn't a surprise to be a young Plymouth team, 9-0. But here's the incredible thing. That was mid-March. About the second Saturday in March, 1955. I remember 11 o'clock kickoff. Duncan Edwards, Manchester United News. He was a first team player, by the way. But the first team that day were playing a friendly because it was FA Cup day and they'd been knocked out. So he played in the youth side, which he did as much as he possibly could. Three weeks after that, and I'm sorry, I know I'm speaking to someone in Greenwich, but three weeks after that, he made his England debut against Scotland at Wembley, uh, when England won 7-2, and, and uh, he played alongside Billy Wright and Stanley Matthews. That was three weeks after playing in, in that youth, youth team. Um, and just one point on that. What a, a, a real annoyance I have with the Premier League side now, and it would be interested on people's views on this. I think if a player even if he's in the first team, can play, in, is eligible to play in the FA Youth Cup. I think he should do so. I think that's, you know, the the history of a club and everything. And the, and the youngster will 
will have come through from seven or eight anyhow. And I think, you know, that is the real mandate of clubs is the FA Youth Cup uh, for young people. And I think, you know, I, I regretted the other year when um, Greenwood, you know, was in the first team, but United had a semi-final against Chelsea. And, you know, we didn't play him because it was a first team game in another two or three days. And I think, no, he, you know, the youth team, and, and that just shows it back into the, the, the 50s as the Busby Babes was being formulated. I want to, to ask you about um, the Busby Babes and, and St Matt Busby's reign at Manchester United as a whole. Obviously, mm-hmm. you have the, the tragedy of um, 1958 and then 10 years later, St Matt manages to, to, to rebuild a club and, and achieve greatness at, at European level, which, let's be honest with you, the, the team with Duncan Edwards and co probably would have done if it wasn't for mm-hmm. the tragedy. Um, what are your memories of St Matt's era as a whole? Because it's one of the greatest stories in football history, in my opinion. Yeah, well, of course, there's three great football stories, stories uh, um, of that time, including two other Scotsmen, aren't there? Shankly and, and Steen, uh, the, the three of them, really. Uh, uh, I think there's been good books about the Kings and uh, uh, football and that type of thing. But Busby himself um, had the real honour and pleasure of, um, of interviewing um like this one, it was in his office, face to face, for a good 45 minutes, and he gave me his time, and then I met him a bit later where we were both on William Morgan's testimonial committee. And of course, for someone like myself, who'd, who'd, who'd watched the growth of the Busby Babes, perhaps I'll explain a couple of games in a minute or two about them, but um, to actually sit opposite him in his office after he'd retired, this is in 1982, something like that. And, you know, it is, hey, you're right. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness. I'm talking to to Samat here. And uh, he was very homely, um, very welcoming, very kind. uh, And he just had a massive, massive aura about him, which wasn't a self-conceited aura. It was an aura of um, fulfilment in himself, you could see that. And you could instantly see uh, his attention to detail and not in a flamboyant way, not in an aggressive way, but his attention to detail, how he will have been a success as a man manager. And I think none of the two words that would suit sum him up for me, man manager. For example, it was just me and him, 45 minutes. And about six weeks after, I uh, was one of the meetings for William Morgan's testimonial committee in a hotel called the Crestor Court in Altrincham. And uh, I was on the same committee, and a lot of good and the great of Manchester who were, were there, and some, I mean, Willie had people like Johnny Mathis and the, the, the singer and um, Howard Keel, the famous. Uh, single actor, you know, they were on the committee. Obviously, they weren't there at this type of meeting. But I just went along, Billy No Mates stood in the room, still shy. I mean, I'd be about 30, I'd be about 35 then. Um, but I was, you know, still perhaps not as knowing what I know now. And, and, and Matt Busby walked through the door with a famous um, accountant um, in, around Manchester. And seriously walked in and, and people with heads turned. And he walked past me. And as he walked past me, he said, Hey, Roy, good to see you again. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. 
<laughs> you know, it's six weeks since we met, and I was just a little roiker about it, and uh, it was that attention, you understand, and that warm, and you can see um, what effect he would have had. I mean, I was told later he would arrange for his players, um, if, if their wives or children were in hospital, there was always something sent to the bedside, and you know, if it was people's birthdays and things such as that, it, that I don't know, he would have secretaries and people such as that, but it, he would lead that organisation and every little touch, which is a big touch, was adhered to. And in terms of those moments and the attention to detail that he put into everything and, and the warmth of his relationship uh, with players, <clears throat> with authors, writers, fans... Is it no surprise the success that he was able to achieve when you when you look back behind sight? Because you think of the qualities also of Sir Alex Ferguson, who who comes obviously decades later. The parallels between them and how they were able to treat people and players and individuals is is, is unbelievable. Very much so. I think these. Uh, I mean, they were both successful, and they both had, had different ways in fairness, um, but it, it had the same end result. Um, I think uh, Busby was more behind the scenes, if you understand what I mean. Uh, his utterances were behind closed doors virtually all times. And when he would be speaking globally, he would be speaking, um, you know, generally. Uh, whereas Alec uh, Ferguson um, wasn't shy of, of saying things globally, was he? Uh, you know, and of course, it's a different area. I mean, the thing is with Fergie, um, because his success came um, I'm, I'm trying to think how to word this but if, if social media which came in the early 2000s I mean Facebook and Twitter you'll have the dates but I think one is one about 2005 one about 2008 something like that yeah. um, now, now imagine that would have been 1980 and, and 1985. Um, I mean, Fergie wouldn't have lasted, would he? Uh, those uh, growing four years um, before his success. Well, I'm saying he wouldn't have. I'd be, you'd be surprised, wouldn't you, that if, if he, he, he'd have lasted um, before his, his fruits came to fruition, really. Um, and, and Busby, of course, didn't have that social media uh, impact on him either. And in, in those days, the rapport between, the, in brackets, the proper uh, sporting journalists of the time and the household names of the time was very, very strong and very, very confidential. Um, what went on in Rome, stayed in Rome type of thing. Um, so it is interesting and... Uh, but but uh, you know they, they both had enormous success. I mean, Alex, figures wise, had an even bigger success. Um, but Matt, um, you know, if you went back to forty eight Cup, fifty two League, and, and that that was a team that um, that had lost seven years. Don't forget in the war, uh, and then to the, the, the FA Youth Cup in fifty three was a big bonus for Matt Busby, really because it helped him uh, develop these young players that him and Jimmy Murphy had decided 
was going to be United's future. And of course, 56 title, 57 title, 58, um, a chance of something. You know, they're in the fifth round of the cup, they're in the semi-final again of the European Cup, and they were about four or five points off the top. Um, but had a big game with Wolves, which should have been the following Saturday after the Belgrade match. Um, so they were in, and you know, and they had so much strength in depth um, that you know, there's no doubt there would have been success. But then, of course, he won the cup in '63, Matt, uh, and then '65 and '67 the league, and '68 the European Cup. So, so he had, um, you know, he had Munich in between all of that, which uh, thankfully Sir Alec didn't. No, absolutely, and and the way that he was able to to build a new team after Munich, and obviously the the emotional trauma and physical trauma that himself and and the survivors went through was was utterly remarkable. I was fortunate to to speak to Patrick Barclay, who I call it a friend now, and and he's obviously um, written a, a book on on Sir Matt and and studied that period closely as a as a fellow Scot, and it is utterly remarkable how he was able to have the strength to, to to as I say overcome well I suppose you never overcome but to be able to in spite of the emotional and physical stress and trauma to, to rebuild the sides to, to conquer Europe I actually I mean a lot of people talk about Leicester City winning uh, the Premier League has been an incredible success arguably one of the best in football history um, talk about Greece potentially winning the European Championships or Denmark in the early 90s but I actually think and when you look back at the history of football, I think what Sir Alex, sorry, Sir Matt Busby was able to do at Manchester United, given the tragedy of '58, going into '68, for me is the greatest ever football achievement. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, you're the you're the ones that are obviously fine as well. And you know, sometimes it's when you, when you start getting who was the best, who was the greatest, what was it? Um, but no, you're right. It should be still accorded in the same breath as, as those. Um, those feats because um, I mean the, the real key to it in life of course you need the word luck at any time and it wasn't luck on this case because Matt wanted him from a very very young age in fact I'll tell you a little story about this one in a moment but I think the signing of Dennis Law in, in July August 62 was, was pivotal to the success that he had because once the crash had, had, had occurred and you know don't forget they lost 10 players really because they got killed and two others Johnny Berry and Jackie Blanchflower never played again because of their injuries and I mean you know it's incredible just to think that that's a full team basically um, and, and don't forget you had to put teams out in the reserves and youth teams as well so you had to find players um, I mean, I, uh, just going back to just slightly before Munich, I can remember vividly going to two matches. I went on Saturday the 25th of January 1958 to watch United play Ipswich Town in the FA Cup uh, fourth round at Old Trafford. Ipswich were a third division side then, I think. They were managed by, by Al Ramsey. Um, and Gary Bailey's father, Roy Bailey, was in goal for them, by the way. Um, and United had the fourth team out, uh, fourth round of the cup. And, all, and United won 2-0, Bobby Charlton got two goals. 
And this was like the last time that Roger Byrne, Eddie Coleman, Mark Jones, Duncan Edwards and Tommy Taylor played at Old Trafford. The week after, the 1st of February, I went to watch the reserves play Wolverhampton Wanderers, top of the table, United Reserves then. One, four, three, it was cold, it was misty, foggy even, um, bit of drizzle about. Um, and there was 19,000 on, 19,000 watching the reserve team. And Busby had made some changes just before Christmas. He bought, he bought Harry Gregg, of course. Uh, so in goal in the reserve team was Ray Wood, who was a hero of mine. Uh, it was uh, with the team at Munich, and he survived the crash, obviously. Um, but also in the team was Jackie Blanchfleur and Johnny Berry, who would never play football again because of their injuries. Um, Billy, Jack Bent, who got killed, but a reserve left fullback. And Billy Whelan, who got killed, and David Pegg, who got killed. So, you know, over those two Saturdays, those two games, I saw the 10 people who were most affected by the crash. Um, play their last games at Old Trafford. So you can imagine as a 10-year-old lad, I was totally engrossed with United. They meant everything. And I can remember now exactly where I was on, on that day, the 6th of February. And if, I, if I'd have learned my maths in English much more than I knew Wood, Folks, Byrne, Coleman, Jones, Edwards, Barry Whelan, Taylor, Violet and Peg, um, I probably would have been far cleverer man than them. <laughs> in terms of your love of United, I mean, it's completely evident from, from speaking to you, but it's also evident through your writing. Um, the latest book that you've got out, um, along with Carl Abbott, is The Big Manchester United Book of the 70s. You've got a foreword yeah. in there from former captain Martin Buchan. What was the process like of producing that book? Because it's a, a beautifully put together book. If anyone that hasn't um, came across it yet, it's absolutely beautiful. It's got great photographs in it, um, never seen before photographs. It's got match reports. Um, it's got interviews with former players of that era. And I, I must say, I'm a stats geek, so I love the information and stats that you get season by season as well. That's very kind of in, in recent years, both Carl Abbott and myself have, have decided to go down the self-publishing route. That, that, that's purely, uh, this one it isn't self-published, but I'm just giving you a bit of background. Um, and, you, you know, we've done books on um, Johnny Carey, um, on United in the 60s, uh, on Harold Hardman, who was a charismatic, well, sorry, that's the wrong word. He was one of the three great chairmen Manchester United ever had uh, behind J.H. Davis, James Gibson and, and himself. Um, and the reason being that, we, you know, we wanted to write a story and we wanted to get out there and, you know, publishers, quite rightly, want to publish stuff at their own pace. And if we want to write something now, we, we do it and, and then, and then self-publish it, put it on Amazon. Uh, and, and off you go. But in this case, Legends Publishing have done very decent books on them now, on, on, on Villa particularly. Um, uh, he's, a, he's a guy called David, David Lane, who's the publisher, big Benford fan actually. And he got in touch and asked, uh, would, would I write 
the, the story of the United in the 70s, but use the format that they had for the Villa and Brentford books of the 70s. Um, so, so that format, as you've probably seen, it's, it's 410 pages, and it's every single official game, match report, in the 10 seasons, and then a month-by-month uh, report of that season in, in the season's pages. Uh, and then all 76 players who played at least one substitute appearance in the first team in the official games by us. Um, and then the, the 101, I think it is, other fixtures that United will have played in friendlies and uh, tours. Um, and then the reserves summary, uh, statistically, and, and then the youth summary. So he, want, he wanted it done in that format. Um, I, I did the writing, uh, and Carl uh, helped with a lot of pictures, and a guy called Tony Park, who um, is a brilliant man, does uh, a MUFC um, academy, and he, you know he's a lover of the, um, of, of, the, of the junior sides. He had loads of souvenirs, which we, we, we used as well. Um, so that's how, that, that's how the book came about. And it's a big, glossy book. Uh, it's a bit expensive. It's forty quid, thirty nine ninety nine. But I think when you look at it in the light of of the production, it, you know, it costs a lot to to produce a book such as that. It, it certainly does, and and I think that's something that people need to realise when whenever someone's putting out the level of creative output that that you, Carl, and, and the team have been able to put together there. It's absolutely um, incredible and it has to be um, respected. You know, I think it's important mm. that people remember that, that the hours that, that are poured in, yes, you do it for the love, you do it for the passion, but at the end of the day, um, it really is a, a, something that if you're a United fan, it will be worth your while. But the other, the other aspect of your writing that really interests me, Roy, is the fact that You've written books on a book on the sixties as well, but you've also mm. written books, as as you've mentioned there, on individuals. What what's the process like when you're covering an individual? For instance, the biography of of Johnny Kerry, for instance. What what's the difference between writing about a period of time or a team as such compared to just one individual? That's a very good question. Um, I, th- I think the starting point from my um, point of view is um, do I really want to write, you know, about this person? So consequently, I don't have to be asked about that. It's, it's, is, is the story there something that I feel needs telling particularly? Um, so if, if you said to me, for example, would you write me a book about so-and-so or would you write me a book about that particular time? Unless I was really, really interested in it, I don't think I would have the um, the time. I don't think I would have the inclination, and I don't think I would have the drive to write about it. And um, so that's important, first of all, that you want to really write and concentrate on that particular subject, be it a, a, a person or a team or an era. Um, so in, in Johnny Carey, for example. Again, Callum, you know, we just spoke about social media. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> Eric Cantona is, is over 25 years now. <laughs> uh, the Busby Babes um, uh, on the 6th of February, 64 years. 
Um, and of course, Manchester United, to a lot on social media, not the younger one, is there now. It's uh, Maguire, Rashford and Ronaldo, isn't it? And, and fair enough, you know, I mean, <clears throat> that, that's the situation. But, but history does tend to get forgotten. And, you know, there are some people's stories that just need telling. Now, others might be able to write it in a better way than I do, or even go and search even more information than I do. But my argument would be, well, yeah, but you've not done it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, there's been plenty of time people will have been able to write a book about Johnny Kerry. <laughs> but I had met him a couple of times before he, he died. And um, again, like Busby, quiet, authoritative, um, but he, I mean, I remember interviewing him uh, again in the early eighties. I went to his house in Bramall, stop, to stop, and um, once I went in the house, um, I was struck immediately by the fact that there was nothing shouting to you that this was one of the, and I'm not exaggerating it. I really want to put this out there. One of his time one of the world's great footballers. We're not talking here of a good footballer, we're talking of a great footballer. And there was nothing in the house that jumped out at you, except for the Footballer of the Year trophy, which he'd got in 1949, I think. Uh, the second um, winner of that, I think Matthews was the first one. Uh, I remember saying to him, John, have you got souvenirs or anything? And he went upstairs and he came down with like a, a Tesco type of bag. He wasn't Tesco in them days, of course. And in it, he had about five shirts. And it, as he pulled them out, I'm sure the shirt could have stood up on its own. But one was a, a plain white shirt of England, just with the number seven, red seven on the back, which was Stanley Matthews. And then there was a, a red whale shirt and the back had the number in those days they used to do like a white box and the number would be in the box you follow me so you got the back of the red shirt and there's this white box and the number nine that's what with trevor ford and then he had a johnny played for both languages. he played for both irish um football federations because you could do up to um about 1950. Um, so uh, he had this other shirt, uh, a slightly faded sky blue shirt with a Scottish and a Glasgow um, link on it, by the way, for you. And it was when he captained the rest of Europe against Great Britain at Hampden Park in 1946, 47, and about £120,000 there watching this match, fundraising match after the war, he captained the rest of Europe against Great Britain. Because obviously Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland wouldn't be counted under the Great Britain target. He was asked by the, the, the selectors of Great Britain, actually, but there was a, a, a bit of a, a wrangle about, about that. But he captained them, and he had the shirt. He was a fantastic man. Um, Captain Manchester United uh, to 48 and the 52 league titles. Um, and, you know, was one of Ireland's greatest ever footballers. Um, but then he became a top manager. He, he had a, 
a great career at Blackburn Rovers. Um, then at uh, Leighton Orient, where he, he took them for their only time in their history to the, fir the first division, Premier League of today. Um, then at Everton, um, and then at Knox Forest, um, where he came second to United in the league in 67. And they got to the semi-final of the FA Cup that season. <laughs> and one of the, one of his um, not him personally because it, it, the signing was done by the chairman was um, buying Jimmy Baxter when the, the great Baxter who I remember seeing at Wembley against England a couple of times uh, absolutely majestic but he, he, he went and he, he went too quick and uh, Forrest bought him when he was on his downward spiral but Johnny Kay, I mean just talking to you like that I mean that is fantastic romantic story isn't it and um, you know I felt it worth telling and that was why, why, why we did it Absolutely, it's worth telling and as you say, I mean, I'm I'm 26 and I have to be honest and say that I'm fascinated by football far before my time as much as mm. I am about modern football. Um, mm. I love modern football in terms of the the opportunities you get to watch it on TV. Um, I, I love going to matches, but at the same time, maybe I'm, people would say I'm strange because of my age I love nothing more than watching back old teams from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 60s um, obviously Celtic here in Scotland I mean I love nothing more than watching the European Cup final of 67 against Inter Milan because I love watching the players of that era I love watching how the game was different um, and I think I think that's something that I, I wish more people would maybe pay attention to because football hasn't been around just from 1992 as unfortunately many younger no. people seem to think now which is deeply frustrating I have to be honest with you what's your opinion on the modern game Roy because as I say there is a and again I, I know young people younger people than myself they don't mean it maliciously but to them they only know the Premier League they only know the UEFA Champions mm. League they, 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 they can't quite imagine the old First Division or the European Cup as it was before the, the, the reforms in, in the 1990s and early 2000s yeah. Just before I answer that I mean going back to the Celtic Lions of course um, I, I saw uh, Ronnie Simpson I mean there's a story I mean you know I, I you know, I'm sure he's not going to book on Ronnie Simpson, but there's a story. I saw him play for Newcastle when Newcastle were, you know, the team that generally won the FA Cup. Um, and I actually saw him play for Newcastle in, in reserves in 58, just after Munich um, at Old Trafford. Um, and then, of course, he went to Celtic. Um, and I actually saw his debut for Scotland in... Um, which one was that? Would be 65, I think, or was it 67? I went to both of those. The one was 2-2. Um, I think it might have been 67 when um, Scotland won 3-2 and became world champions. <laughs> <laughs> and McCallion never lets me forget it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't... I must admit, on both occasions, 65 and 67... I felt quite lonely being an Englishman in Wembley on both occasions. It was, uh, it was amazing, the, 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 the numbers. Um, but yeah, you know, so that, that would come out now. I, I don't think I'll write it. But, you know, if you look at Ronnie Simpson's career, I think he started out at Queen's Park with a famous amateur side. And, um, you know, and then Newcastle, FA Cup winners. And, and then, 
Glasgow Celtic and, and winning the uh, European Cup um, and then being capped by Scotland, you know, probably at the age of 37 or something such as that. Um, you know, I mean, it jumps out at you as a story. I will come back to the modern ones in a, in a minute, but th- that was one of the reasons I wrote the book about Harold Hardman. As I, as I just said, Hardman was, in my opinion, the last of United's great chairmen. Uh, John Davis was the man who changed Newton Heath to Manchester United when he bought them um, and rescued them financially. And then James Gibson was the man in the 30s who had the Davis's death um, rescued United, you know, from financial woes, um, and then had the, the trauma of the ground being bombed and uh, and then signing Busby as his manager. And sadly, he died um, just just before they won the uh, 52 title. Um, and Harold Hardman replaced him. And Harold Hardman's story is it, it, it epitomizes what your question was at the start about why he would write a book. When you look at Harold Hardman's story, he actually played in Blackpool's first ever game at Bloomfield Road at the age of 18. He was signed by Everton and won the FA Cup in 1906 with Everton and was in the losing side in 1907. In 1908, he won the Olympic gold with Great Britain because he was an amateur footballer. He actually was uh, into law and he became a solicitor and he never got paid for his football. And all that time, he was working in law, but yet playing at that level. He played in England's first ever amateur international, which was away in Paris against France, who had their full first team out, and England won 15-0. And it's still in France's record books as their highest ever defeat. But it it was the England amateur team's uh, creation. He also played for the England professional team. Um, then he joined Bradford City and um, he played four games in United, joined Bradford City and then, then Stoke and then the war came. And then he got asked to join the United before the war in 1912 as a director. And he was a director till about 1933. When Gibson took over, Gibson cleared everybody out. But within a matter of weeks, he realised that Harold Arden was someone he should have kept and brought him back. Then he was he was uh, vice chair, and then he was the chairman from 1952 till his death in 1965. So he was right through the Busby Babes and the famous football program of the Sheffield Wednesday match. On the cover, United will go on. It's written by Harold Arden, um, and he was there when they won the cup in '63. He he was alive when they won the league title in '65. He died in the June. But it was interesting. He he remembered the financial times of the 30s when, you know, money was really tight. And him and Matt had a lot of, I wouldn't say arguments, but they certainly had disagreements. I mean, Matt very rarely bought a player. But Harold Hardman's attitude would be, well, no, can we afford him? Um, Why do we want him when we've got these type of players are you, are you women and that was starting to come more to the fruition in that period you asked about Matt after 58 um, for example the first signing they made was Albert Quicksall for 45,000 which is 
well, that was 15,000 over the British record. Now, that's a big amount. And without being unkind to Albert Twitzel, he was a very good player. It certainly wasn't worth 45,000 um, when the British record was 30,000. Um, and when Dennis Law's transfer came up, he, he was against it because it was 115,000. And he said, well, you know. Um, but Busby was right. I mean, Law did make the difference. In my, my opinion, uh, Law and Cantona have been the two biggest signings United ever made because of what they did. Not just personally, because both their records were amazing, but for the impact that they had on the team and the other players and the club. So, you know, there to me was a, a really fascinating story, which I wanted to write about all that. You asked about today and yesterday. Well, today it's faster. Um, the pictures are sublime compared to when you're looking at a picture of a, a 70s game, even or 80s game. You know, look at the pictures. Uh, the money is is truly obscene. And it's not the players' faults, by the way, because people want to to pay this type of money and, and whatever. Um, you know, you can be accused of, uh, well, that's, you've not got it and whatever. But someone was talking to me only the other week about a Liverpool reserve player who's on £65,000 a week. Now, if you actually multiply some of these figures, that's over £3 million. Now, that starts getting serious. And when you think an average Premier League footballer will be on £100,000 a week, and some will be on 200, 300, 400,000 per week. When you multiply that by 52, some of the figures are truly obscene. If you think the Prime Minister of this country, and let's not get into the deep politics, but rather the Prime Ministers of this country, their salary, and I know they'll get perks, and I know after life they'll get very well treated, but their salary is about 150, 160,000 per year. Let that sink in per year, not per week. So that is truly obscene. And um, don't, and I think now it's starting to affect players. I really do. Because some of them, unless you're born with the club or whatever, I mean, seriously, do you, is it life and death like it is to the to the supporters um, I, I don't know and of course television coverage in one way is given all this money but then I want to go and watch a match at 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon and nowadays it's anything but it's half 7 on a Friday it's 12 o'clock 12.30 on a Saturday it's 5, 5.30 on a Saturday night it's 1 o'clock on a Sunday it's 2 o'clock on a Sunday it's 4.30 on a Sunday it's 8 o'clock on a Monday night Three o'clock on a Saturday, and um, it is way, way gone. Um, and I think that's the biggest difference that I see. Uh, and I have to say, again, I probably would adapt to it if I was 18, 19, 26, 30, more than if I'm 74, which I am now. Um, but, you know, do I really want to go? I mean, United, if, if you go to a night game at United, you need to be there in the vicinity an hour before 
you know, which was about 75,000. And it, this would be the same at all the big crowns. You know, games pushed back. It's not half past seven. It's quarter to eight. It's not, eight, it's not quarter to eight. It's eight o'clock. And the game's over around 10 o'clock. And then do you come out a couple of minutes from the end? I know people get, oh, you shouldn't. But that two minutes could mean not having to stay in a car park for an hour. But seriously, for an hour. I, you know, so, and the game's then live on television. And I know it's always better to be there in live. But, you know, there's such big differences. Um, I preferred it when I watched it, but I would have done winter because I was a lot younger uh, and had the energy more to go. Um, I enjoy watching it, obviously, and I enjoy watching uh, all the different games. But that, that's the big difference. The the last main question I've got for you, and thanks for being so generous with your time, is where can people access your portfolio of work? You mentioned Amazon earlier. Is is Amazon yep. the main port of call for your books, or can they be accessed anywhere else? Yeah, if you go on uh, Roy Cavana, C-A-V-A-N-A-G-H, books on Amazon, that'll, that'll give you those that are available now, uh, that are still available, certainly the Ardman and... Uh, Carey and the United in the 60s book is on there. The one in the 70s um, should be on there, but if you actually Amazon, just go direct to Amazon or get in touch with legendspublishing.net, um, that's where you can buy that particular book. But on my portfolio on Amazon, it will show some, some of the cricket books and things such as that that I've, I've written as well. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be